0: If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans 4 today. Uh, Here's the deal. Uh, Pollen is of the devil. Uh, That's not true. It makes things bloom, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing. My allergies are of the devil. Uh, um, But uh, I am glad to be here today. I'm going to use this mic instead of the normal mic I wear. Uh, I didn't even tell the guys in the back, but they have reacted rapidly. Thank you. In case I have to cough. I can pull it away. So uh, it's good to see you this morning. Romans chapter four, we are in the season of Lent, um, which is a very, very helpful season for me. It's a time when we just set aside, um, we've decided as a church to set aside um, this 40 days, not counting Sundays, uh, to think about and meditate on our mortality and our need of salvation, which I confess, I admit, not the... Most lovely things to maybe spend our time thinking about, but incredibly helpful, incredibly valuable because it helps us then to live rightly based on the reality of what's happening. So this morning, we're going to be in Romans. I've been obsessed lately with this idea. Actually, I say lately. it's It's been a long time. Maybe you've noticed, um, but I, I, maybe this is, I've just lately been phrasing it this way. Obsessed with the idea of, well, then how should I live? Or the question, well, then how should I live? Like, based on this new reality, based on this new fact, this thing that I've heard, well, how do I live now, right? There's a thing that that we all live in response to, or things that we all live in response to. How now, then, do I live based on this? And so Romans is this is so great so you know, i've never preached through romans because uh, there's a couple a couple of ver- uh, books in the bible that terrify me and romans is one of them the responsibility and the weight uh, of romans but uh, um this i just want to today spend time in romans 4 it's a very technical right very technical passage uh, but i want i want to move through it um move through it today it's so helpful uh so what then shall we say As righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law will brings wrath but where there's no law there's no transgression that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives his life, whose life to the dead, calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As you've been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the word lords, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead Jesus, our Lord, raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. OK, very technical passage. Paul is making an argument he 's made this incredible statement, he said that you 're saved by faith at the end of Romans three. He said that you're saved by faith and um, that it's faith that, that makes you right. And then he has this incredibly technical argument, talking to people, uh, appealing to the scripture, appealing to the Old Testament, arguing with people maybe who uh, have a uh, great respect for the Old Testament, which, which brings me to a question. Uh, what then does this have to do with the modern man? Um, <clears throat> I think that... Um, you know, I'm really grateful for this church. I love the way that we do things, and I love, uh, there's, so many, there's so many people who just step in and, and do so much, love one another well. Uh, one of the things that I love that we do um is the weekly reading of scripture and the weekly confession of the Apostles' Creed. And here's why. And not only that, that we not only do them, but we explain week in and week out why we do them. And I think it would be a fair criticism for somebody to say, hey, like every week we do this, why do we do this every week? Doesn't it just become a habit? Why would you do this? Uh, And to them, I I respond uh, with a video from YouTube that I saw. Someone sent me this video uh, on YouTube a long time ago, and I think about it often. Uh, There's this woman, uh, she is in a... uh, a care. She's older, uh, and she uh, is has lost some of her um, capacity to remember. She doesn't remember her family. She doesn't remember anything dementia has set in, um, but she was a, a ballerina for most of her life, and they come in, and she doesn't remember anybody. She's just sitting in her chair. She looks just passive and beautiful um and then someone plays uh um a passage of music um and she begins it from her wheelchair to begin to move her arms and to begin to dance beautifully to this to this passage that she had she had danced to her whole life because it was just such a part of who she was i love that so much that it was so ingrained in her that even when she was It was just in her body that even when she was suffering, she still remembered a life performing to this music. And so when we do these things, we don't just do them, but we explain why we do them. When we say these things over and over, when we read scripture over and over, it's not just because we think that, that it's just a fun thing to do. It's because we want it to be grooved into our thinking, grooved into our feeling, grooved into our mind so that we live out of it, we respond out of it almost subconsciously. But I think it's important that we explain why we do it week in and week out. Um, because so uh, a while back, some years ago, oh man, it must have been 15, 20 years ago, I was talking to a guy uh, who was, uh, had been at a church for forever, and, and he talked about how they, they were discontinuing their choir. And I was like, man, that's sad. That's sad. I, I, I wish that, yeah, I wish there were more choirs. And he's like, yeah, man, you know what, though? Like, just people want a band, so we're getting rid of a choir to put in a band. And I was like, um, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how many people are sitting in the pews and, and thinking, like, you know what? I'd worship this Jesus if they had drums. I, don't, I just don't know that that's happening, right? Like I, I don't, maybe we've missed why um, why people have moved on. I think this. I think that to my grandparents, my great-grandparents, Coming together and singing songs is incredibly valuable. So my parents and my grandparents just followed in the steps and then their kids kind of, kind of followed in their steps, but it wasn't quite important. And we forgot to pass on from generation to generation why we thought this was important. So that's what we do. We pass on from gener- generation to generation why we think these things are important. It went so that they're not just habits. So they're not just things that we say, but we explain why we are grooving these truths into our very being right so that when subconsciously when we've lost everything else perhaps we still dance to these truths right i say that but say this if you grew up in a church if you grew up in a church that taught the gospel you have heard these truths your whole life if you grew up in a church that taught The gospel, you learned this, that you were saved by grace through faith right? That's it. That's the thing that sets the gospel of Jesus, the gospel uh, communicated to us in scripture. It sets us apart from anything else, is that we are saved not by what we do, but solely by faith in Jesus Christ. That we—it It is a gift from God that we cannot earn, that we cannot uh, ever accomplish enough to be owed that, that we are saved by faith alone. If you grew up in a church, man, I hope you heard that. I hope you heard it over and over and over again. It is one of the deepest truths. But here's what I fear, and I will never contradict that. If I do, remove me rapidly. But I wonder sometimes maybe if we've heard it so much, it's just become habit, and I don't think about how I live. Like, if it is by faith and not by works, how then do I live? Right? So Paul Starts out this passage, and he says, or this whole section, actually the section right before, he's talking about saving by faith, saving faith, and he's having this conversation with people in Rome, and he's arguing for this position that you're saved by faith; it's not by works that you're saved. And so he immediately goes to the absolute greatest example of someone who lived by obedience: this guy named Abraham, the father of all faith, the father of everything of this whole whole faith system. And he says to, about Abraham, he says, "Listen, let's talk about Abraham." Abraham Abraham, man. Yeah, Abraham, dude, he was a good guy. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He followed all the rules. He followed all the laws. But here's what you need to know Was he saved by his works or was he saved by faith? God made all of these promises to him. Was he saved by faith in those promises that God was going to do the things he said or was he saved by works? And Paul makes this very technical argument He was saved by faith. He wasn't saved by, he was saved before he did all the things, before he ever accomplished any of those things, before he ever did any of those works. He was saved, it says, it was credited to him as righteousness that he believed God. God made, God made Abraham some insane promises. He said, listen, here's the deal, Abraham, I want you to leave your father, I want you to leave all these people, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, I'm going to make you the father of many, many nations, and Abraham's, basically, his response is, or his thinking is, how is this possible, I'm a hundred years old. I'm not going to be the father. I don't have any kids. And you're going to make me the father of nations? That's crazy. My wife is in her 90s and you're going to do. And it says that Abraham believed him and God credited to him as righteousness the faith that he had. This is so important to the Christian faith. It's not that we earn. It's through faith and faith alone. It's not that we can achieve. It's through faith and faith alone. But here is the thing that I wonder. Here's the thing that I struggle with in my own life. How then do I live? What what does it mean to live by faith? Or how about this? How do I get this faith? How how do I get this faith that he talks about? It's not just Abraham, but even begins to talk about David. Hey, David wasn't saved by faith. David, in his Psalms, he goes to God and says, I have sinned against you in such a way, the only thing that I can do is throw myself on the mercy of you, and I know on your mercy, and I know that you can forgive. And it's his faith that is credited to him as righteousness. I I grew up, I I, I don't think anybody told me this. I just kind of picked up that the Bible was not, well, the Bible was primarily these rules that we're supposed to live by, right? Right? I went to a Christian school, so, like, the most important thing you could do is make sure your shorts weren't, like, you know, finger-length, right? That was the deal. That's how you knew you were Christian, is if your shorts were not finger-length. Uh, and and like, that was, like, the huge deal. You didn't play Uno, right? Because is basically cards, and you're just, like, one step from owning a Rottweiler and throwing dice in an alley. Like, it was like, you don't play Uno, because like it was, like, those kinds of rules. And I don't know if they said that. I'm sure they taught. I'm sure they taught grace, But what I heard was the Bible is primarily these rules about how you're supposed to live so God's happy with you. And what Paul argues and what we we teach here, what we believe here is the Bible is not primarily, it's not a bunch of rules about how you're supposed to live. It's It's not primarily some moral ethical structure to make you a decent human being. It's primarily the story of this thing that God did. That's what the Bible is. It's this story of God, a God who loved us, who created everything and desired so much to be in relationship with us that even when we rebelled, he dedicated himself to pursuit of us to bring us back into relationship with him. The whole Bible is this story of how it starts in a garden and ends in a city. It starts with uh, humanity dwelling with God and it ends with humanity dwelling with God. And everything in between is the story of how God has pursued rebels to bring them back to him. It's not primarily a set of rules about how we're supposed to live. It's primarily good news about this God who has done these things. That's why it's such a big deal that it's about faith and faith alone. So here's the deal. Here's the thing. Here's what I, here's what I believe. I believe that we are all living by faith. Not just people who are Christians. Christians. I think that every single human being that walked the face of the earth in some sense is living by faith in something. We are ordering our daily steps based on a system of belief. Not that's necessarily contrary to facts, but that is still, we believe this to be true, so we live a certain way. Or we love these things, so we live a certain way. We as humans, can't help but live by faith. Let me give you an example. Let's say there was a season in my life when I did everything I could to get away from God. I ran away, I just, anything I could to get away, to just push out of my mind the reality of this. And I found after, I found in my life this truth that I was living, I couldn't live, I did not have enough faith to live as, as if I would not give an answer for the life that I, was, that I lived one day. I just couldn't run away from that. I had this constant perception in my entire being that I would one day give an account for the life that I had lived, that what I was doing mattered, that how I was living mattered, and that one day somebody was gonna ask me about the way that I had lived. I couldn't get away, and I was realized I didn't have enough faith to be an atheist, to live as if I was never, ever, ever gonna have to answer for how I'd done, what I'd done we live by faith I think that some of us man in the church even no especially in the church I think that we sometimes feel if we've checked certain boxes then we're good to go how do I know that I have faith? Well, you know, in the tradition I grew up in, it was because you walked an aisle, said a thing, and then you got on a bus and sang friends are friends forever on the way home. Like, that's how you knew you were a Christian, right? Like, you had checked all those boxes, right? I did the things, man. I was very emotional. And, 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 and so, yes, I, I've marked it. How do you know that you're a Christian? Oh, I, I said the prayer. I did the things. And, and here's my question, though. I, I don't know if that's really faith. Because if you actually believe, if I actually live as, and I'm not saying that God doesn't use that, by the way, for sure I know people whose lives have been changed, you know, singing Amy Grant songs on the drive home. Like for sure, I know that's happened. God, God in his great infinite grace uses all manner of things to draw us to him. But I don't know that necessarily uh, that uh, Dallas Willard calls them, uh, it calls it Christianity uh, by minimum entrance requirements. Yep, I checked the boxes and I'm in. Good to go. And now I can go live however I want. That's not the faith that Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a faith. I believe this to be true. So then it affects now how I live. Let me give you an example. In Matthew Jesus is teaching and, and healing and he's doing all these amazing things. And he's going around saying things, teaching people how to pray. He's healing people and going through all these things, all of these, all of these different things. And he keeps claiming authority. He keeps demonstrating authority. But what he is doing with all of that authority is he's setting people free. He's healing a leper. He is uh, It's the faith of a centurion that heals him. And then there's this amazing, I just, I just love it so much. He heals a storm and he heals his paralytic. Oh, it's just so beautiful. I love the way Matthew lays it out and, and, and then yeah, they have questions and they begin to challenge him and, uh, and it says this it says this um, Jesus did this where is it? I lost it. Oh, here it is. <clears throat> Getting the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, uh, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, then I said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home and the crowds saw it and they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him and saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made neither's new wine put in old wadskins. it if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Jesus is going around and he's teaching and he's freeing people from sickness and he's freeing people from these obligations, these religious re- religious rituals and he's explaining to them all of the things that are going to happen. He's explaining that this is new information new beautiful thing that he's, this, that he's talking about in the world. He's explaining to, to the world and Jesus says to them I have the authority to forgive sins I, I, I one of the things that I, I, I lament about modern culture is we've gotten rid of uh, some of the really religious words, right? They were helpful, right? Sin is a helpful concept, right? Um, uh, uh, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to forgive sins. And I think everybody reacts to this in, in, in scripture like, oh, yeah, yeah, how can he forgive sins? I think that today the average person would say, oh, Jesus forgives sins. And we're like, so what? What does it matter that Jesus forgives sins? And here's why I think that's the case. I think that we react that way because we don't really believe and understand the depth of our brokenness and the depth of the influence and power of sin. I worry that we don't understand it, and it's to our, great, our great tragedy. Uh, it's a great tragedy that we don't understand it, because here's the deal. Uh, we all, as humans, understand falling short. We all, as humans, understand missing the mark, but we're told that, you know what? If you can just figure out a way to forgive yourself, everything will be okay, which is a silly thing, right? If my friend Josh just jumped up here and ran up here and just Will Smith me, pow, right? It smack me good, and then turned around to you and said, I just have to find a way to forgive myself. You would think that was insane. You're like, Chris needs to forgive you. Also, by the way, I don't think you guys are going to be okay ever again. We don't realize the impact of sin and how it affects our souls, how it infects the environment of relationships. The, the story of scripture that we're hearing, that, that, that Paul is responding to, the story of scripture is that, that we humans have not only polluted our souls, but and, and, and we've polluted the land and we've polluted the relationships that we have, that sin is this pollution that takes over and causes us to behave in a such a way that, that there's great damage. God hates sin not because he's, Keeping a list and and, and and because he just made up a bunch of random rules to see who will listen to him. God hates sin because it causes great damage to those that he loves. So then what do we do? I, I think the people in these stories, they have this concept of sin. We as moderns, we don't have this concept of sin anymore. So what then do we do when we failed? What do we do when we know we've fallen short? What do we know, what do we do when someone's done something terrible to us or we've done something terrible? Or if we just look at the sum of our lives and go, how am I supposed to live now? What does it matter all the things that I've done and all the things that I'm going to do? What do I now do? And the concept of sin is so helpful to go, oh, there's a set out there. There's a there's a being out there against whom I have sinned, against whom I have rebelled. And if I can go to him and somehow make it right, if I can somehow go to him and make up for it, then, then, then everything will be OK. And then you get into this place where you begin to, to freak out. You get to the place that I did when I was in high school, when I just began to realize I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to be good enough. I'm never, ever going to live up. I'm always going to stumble. I'm always going to fall. Every time I resolve 100%, I'm never going to do these things again. I always end up doing them again. How then do I live if I am just a sinful being that cannot ever get it right? It's into this world, into this way of being and this way of thinking that Paul says, listen, you guys are consumed. You guys are obsessed with living up. You have no way to ever live up to God's standards. It's always been, it always was, and it always will be a 100% gift of God's grace. It is by faith, believing that Jesus can do the things that he said he was going to do, believing that God is going to accomplish the things that he's going to do. So here then is the test. Here's how we live. What is it that you have faith in? Do you have faith that this is all that there is, all that there's ever going to be, and you're going to go live in light of that? Do you have faith that none of this really matters? Do you have faith, or do you have faith that one day you will give an account to a God who made you for the life that you've lived? How then do I now live? And what I tend to do, I've noticed, is I take these realities that that Paul has been preaching on, that he's teaching on, I take these truths about salvation by faith, and I say, yes, I believe that it is true that I am saved by faith, that God has loved me this way. Also, though, I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, right? Like also, if I also, you know, if I can get church just right, if I can preach the exact right way, if I can forgive even when it's hard, if I can do just the right things, then maybe I will be approved. And I'm constantly tempted to fall in this pattern of attempting to, of, of trying to prove myself over and worthy of this God. And Paul opens this letter or opens this chapter and says, dude, not even Abraham could do that. Not even Abraham could earn his salvation. Not even David was able of doing that. Both of them threw themselves on the mercy of God. which brings me to how then do I live if I Believe in my heart, not just have mentally assented to a thing that I don't necessarily believe, but I want to be true. If I believe in my heart that there is a God to whom I will, who made all of these things, and and to whom I will one day give an account for my life, and that the way that I'm going to be able to do that is one day to stand before Him and go, It has nothing to do with me, I am with Jesus. He has fulfilled all of the things that I couldn't. He has done all the things that I couldn't. If that is then the reality of the world, it's not just a thing that I believe, that's how the universe works. Do you understand how freeing that is? that that just blows my mind it blows my mind that now it means this the things that have held me captive the things in high school that I just couldn't seem to let go of and I would try and try and try and try and try to let go of it means that by being given a new heart by being given a new life through faith in Jesus it means that these things now are the not the most important defining things in my life That the most important defining thing about who I am is that I am a child of the king Well, that enables me to live differently. When I stumble and I fall, instead of running and hiding, I run to my Father who is forgiven and loves me. When I am deeply wounded and hurt, I can run to my Father. Here's how this, I mean, imagine this situation. Imagine that you are married and uh, or just in a relationship, right? Uh, friendship, whatever. And um, this person hurts you. I, I started saying this thing when I do when I have the opportunity to be involved in people's weddings. I started saying this thing, uh, and someone said to me, "Hey." You have to always say that. It's very upsetting, but it's very important. And what I would start saying in weddings was this. What I say when I do weddings is this. Right before the vows, I say, you're about to promise in the good, and the, the, you know, in the good times and the bad times and all these things, you're about to promise that on days that you don't love me well, I'm going to love you anyway. That's what you're going to promise in front of God and everybody else. On days when you fail to love me like I deserve to be loved, I will love you anyway. That's marriage, Right? this is our relationship with God, right? This is why it says that that, the marriage, uh, Paul writes in somewhere else, he says that marriage is this example, right? And how you do that, and you're supposed to do that. Or more importantly, the way that God has left the church informs how we then live in marriage and, and, and in other relationships as well. But this, this, God who has loved us on days that we have refused to love him, on days that we have rebelled against him, on days that we have stepped out and decided said that we want nothing to do with you, that he has pursued us and loved us anyway. If I live in that world, loving that way, that changes everything. My wife is so much better at this than I am. I learned so much from her about lo- what how Christ loves me. If you come to me, I, I'm an escalator. If you raise your voice, even if it's a nice thing that you said, I'm going to raise my voice even more. Like, do you want dinner? I'm like, do you want dinner? I just naturally kind of respond by escalating the situation. It's just, I don't know why, defensive. I don't know why, but I do it, but I do. It. My wife is the exact opposite. Like I can say things in these, I know it's hard for, hard for you guys to believe, but in these moments of great weakness to, to, like I'm tired and I'm hurt and I'm angry or I'm sad or I've had a disappointing day and she comes in and she's so kind and I just snap or I'm dismissive or I do not love her the way that she deserves to be loved. And my wife somehow does this thing where she just absorbs the pain she just absorbs the hurt the power the transformative power of that is devastating see when our relationship with God we I just don't know that we think about it so much anymore as as moderns maybe maybe you do but but I think on our daily basis I don't know that we think about that what we've done is we've injected into our relationship with the God almighty who desires to know us that we have injected into that our, all of our relationships, our own selfishness, our own pursuit of our, our, our pursuit of our, of, of our own interests, apart from what he's told us to do. And we've injected into that all of this brokenness, all of this hurt. And the scriptures say that he loves us anyway. Do you believe that? If so, then how do you live? Do you respond and go? I am in awe of a God who loves me like this. I am in awe of a God who absorbed in in Himself the pain and the loss and the suffering of sin. See, that's what sin is. What sin does? What sin causes? Sin is this pollution that damages a relationship. It damages everything. So there's this weird stuff in the Old Testament. It's weird to us. It wasn't weird to them. To them, it made perfect sense. Um, but they would offer sacrifices, and to them, is this powerful image. And the image was, it was, sorry, the point was that, that sin cost something. And so this animal would die, and the priest would take on certain, certain sacrifices. They would, he would take the, blood and he would scatter it about. He would, he would fling it about. Uh, It's just the weirdest thing to me. But what he was doing was he was emphasizing in in, in this very visual way, explaining that sin has a way of corrupting everything and that there's always a cost. And this is purifying of the temple, the purifying of the land by the sprinkling of this life everywhere. See, I think the thing that we maybe don't sit with, we don't realize, is that in the, in the way that we live and the things that we do and how we behave and, t- and act towards one another, we don't necessarily get the impact of sin, the damage that it causes. And that there's always a cost with sin. Uh, I think my, my example of this, when I'm short, my wife or whatever, uh, my favorite example of this is if you came into my house, And you were over at my house and we're hanging out, and you turned around and you were just like, Chris, I don't like you, and you knocked over a lamp. You smashed the lamp. And you're like, you know what? I'm sorry, Chris. That was my bad. I apologize. I don't know what was. Don't worry about it. We have two options now, right? I guess three. You can pay for a new lamp, I can pay for a new lamp, or I can sit in the dark. Those are our options because you have sinned against me. There is going to be a cost. Someone will pay for it. And I think that we know this in our bones, in our relationships. When we've wounded someone else, someone will have to pay for this. And I sit there and I say, I just need to forgive myself. You can't pay for it yourself. You can't fix that. That other person, for that, there to be restoration, the other person has to do something for you. The story of the Bible is that the God against whom we rebelled, who we injected all of this hurt, all of this damage, all of this poison into the relationship and into the world, the God of the world said, I love you enough that I'm going to pursue you, that I will come and I will absorb all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurt on the cross. That's how Paul ends this section. He says, I have, he has done it. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How then will we live in all of a God who loves us? knowing this love so here's how this actually plays out in our lives when my wife comes to me and she she maybe is insensitive one day she doesn't realize i don't know what she never happens but she's let's say she hurts my feelings um i feel less than right less than i want to feel and um How then do I turn around and love her like I promised in front of all those people 21 years ago that I'm going to love you even on days that you don't love me when I haven't gotten from her the love that I desired here's then what we do we go to God and say you know what Even though she's my wife, that is what she just said, the thing that hurt me, that's not the most important thing about me. It's that I have been forgiven and I now live in light of the hope that I have that Jesus is my savior and Lord. That's who I am and I can absorb the pain of that hurt and jump right back in there and love her anyway, at least theoretically. I don't do it right every day. I don't do it right most days. But that relationship between us being so important, that relationship being so important between me and God, I am able then to trust that what Jesus has said about me matters. Who he says, that one day he's gone to prepare a place for me, that he's going to make things new. Do I then go live in light of that reality? The thing that we keep in front of us, the habits that we instill, the things that we groove into our behavior and our habits, these are the things that we actually believe are true. What are you living out of? Faith is the thing that we live out of. That one day this love, this career, this relationship, this thing, one day it will make me happy and give me everything I need to be whole and complete, and then we go and live out of that. If it is anything less than Christ, it is lacking he offers us so much. Not by just going like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but by taking in that relationship and understanding that my sin costs so much and he did it willingly because of his great love. Then go and live out of that. Go live and be in the world the kind of force he was. Caring for those that hurt. Being generous with our money because there are people that are in need. Being generous with our attention and our affection because this is how he was. Being able to be in the moment and not constantly running and feeling like I have to constantly accomplish all of these things are now possible because I am his but I have to believe it it's one of the reasons I think this is so important this getting together and hearing you guys sing these songs it reminds me how important it is it reminds me of what is true and reminds me to groove into my actual being that he is our, he is almighty God and all of our hearts are open to him That we live by faith and faith alone. That we have life by faith and faith alone. That is not just a mental ascent to a box that we check, but it is the thing that we actually live out of. Who he is and what he's done. That he can and has and will do all that he said. Abraham believed. God said to him this insane thing. Hey, old man, you are going to have a child and be the father of nations. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And Abraham says, you know what, God? You've always proved yourself true, and I know that you're able. I believe that you're going to do it, even though everything looks like it wouldn't happen. That's faith. That's what we're looking for, that we then live in response to the faith that we have in Jesus. He has said to you, you're a child of the king. How then will you live? Just free, able to, to, to love others, free to, to forgive others that have hurt us, uh, free to know that this is not all that there is, and that we have a king who will one day return and make all things new soon and very soon. What a gift we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the goodness of your word that reveals to us not just how to, not just rules about what it means to live, not just rules about how to act, not just any of those things, but true reality, true reality. Future reality that you will make things brand new that you 've made us brand new that you 've given us opportunity by faith in Jesus to be holy again not just one day in the future but now, forgiven for the things that we 've done, not defined for that things done to us, but living from a reality that you Loved us, that you loved this world enough to absorb the pain and suffering of sin that we might have life. What a gift. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.